This week on the In-Depth Podcast, legendary broadcaster Bob Costas. During our two-and-a-half-hour interview in Manhattan, the 29-time Emmy winner and longtime Olympics host reveals how his career has connected him to some of the most unforgettable figures and moments in sports history. And it's me, A.C. Cowlings, and Kardashian on one side of the glass and O.J. in a blue prison outfit. The life-changing deals he turned down. They did approach me about the Today Show. I'm not getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. His unconventional childhood on Long Island. My father was an inveterate gambler. And so by the time I was 10 or 11, I could give you with great accuracy the line on any game you might mention. So I made book in the cafeteria and the relationship with NBC he would like to reconcile. Do you think that'll happen? I hope so. But first, we start with our relationship. In all honesty, have you ever tolerated anybody annoying you for longer about doing an interview? No, no. I, I could have just shut you down. I could have just said, you know what? No, not now, not ever. There isn't the slightest possibility, but I never did that. You were, you were teetering for a while, yeah. and what, what's the phrase you used about if you could just make this go away? Well, there were a couple of ways that I considered making it go away, which was to have a phalanx of security around me, and at the slightest indication that you were anywhere in the same area code for them to spring into action, or to just do it and get it over with. So now I'm doing it. What's your recollection of when the requests first started? Well, the, the requests, the Graham Bensinger requests, started sometime in the late 1990s or early 2000s when you were in high school, when you were at MICDS in St. Louis. It was 15. That's when we uh, first yeah, did it's an like, interview. Hi, Mr. Costas. I had this radio show on Saturday mornings, and the, yeah, Dan Deardorff said yes, and Joe Buck said yes, and I'm hoping you'll come on. Well, so then I did. I'm now joined by 15-time Emmy Award winner, eight-time Sportscaster of the Year Award winner, the biggest stud in broadcasting, Bob Costas. Thanks for coming on the show, Bob. Graham, Graham, point one. That's not a good introduction. That's not a good introduction? No, no Graham, come on. Was. Don't fawn over your interview subject. But this was a harder booking. This was. Yeah, this is a rough booking. I'm not playing golf with you like Jack Nicklaus or whomever. Did. And I, to be honest, did not think this was going to happen. It was, uh, I think, there were, I, by my count, because I went through the text messages, uh, seven reschedulings or cancellations over three and a half years. And finally, I just said, you know, let, let's bag it because I'm like, man, he obviously, you know, doesn't want to do it. And then a couple months go by and you text me with a date. And I'm like, I must have indirectly guilted him into making this happen. Not indirectly, <laughs> directly. Yes. And here we are. And here we are. Yeah. Um, well, I do really appreciate it. I am unquestionably more excited about today than I have been with anybody we've uh, ever featured. So Graham, thank you for making the time. Get a grip on yourself. I was talking to your longtime producer, uh, Bruce Kornblatt. Yes. And he brought up a conversation you once had with Wayne Gretzky. Mm -hmm. about how when he's skating down the ice, everything just slows down. Yeah. How is that similar for you with television? When I'm at my best, I feel comfortable being on the air. I feel as if the preparation can be brought to bear, but that I'm also spontaneous enough and it's fluid enough 
that if something I couldn't have anticipated happens or something just pops into my head, that I can respond to that in the moment, that I can draw upon something I know or some aspect of my personality can connect to it. In what ways are you a perfectionist? In more ways than I care to list. And on the one hand, being a perfectionist is a good thing because you're holding yourself to a certain standard. And you're not saying, well, because I've done well 500 times before, the 501st is one where I can rest on my laurels. I'll think about how I could do it better the next time, or why the hell didn't I think of that in the moment? I'll give you just one example. Game six of the 1995 World Series. Um, Cleveland against the Braves in Atlanta. The Braves are up three games to two. The Braves had been in the World Series three times since 1991 and could never close the deal. To that point, they were clearly the team of the decade. So what I did say made sense in the moment. Marquise Grissom makes the catch, and I say the team of the 90s has its world championship. Okay, it's serviceable, it's decent. And not more than five seconds later, this pops into my head. Atlanta at last. Now that's good, but it's five seconds too late. I still remember what I didn't say as much as what I did say. I talked to a number of people close to you, and everybody said you have a photographic memory. Your thoughts? I've never bought into that completely, because photographic means that, in truth, you absolutely recall everything. My memory was always very sharp. I think it's still probably sharper than the average person my age, but I see some diminution Do in you? it. Yeah, I can't as instantly recall what I'm looking for. It's still good, but it's not quite at whatever level it once was. I will give you a demonstration that I've never done before. I was bored in like the fourth grade, and back then kids had pencil boxes, and this particular pencil box had all the presidents. And so because I was bored and not paying attention, I memorized all the presidents. And you're gonna notice that I'm gonna slow down when it gets to Lyndon Johnson, because now I have to think of them consciously. Washington Adams, Jefferson Madison, Monroe Adams, Jackson Van Buren, Harrison Tyler, Polk Taylor, Fillmore Pierce Buchanan, Lincoln Johnson, Grant Hayes, Garfield, Arthur Cleveland, Harrison Cleveland again, McKinley Roosevelt, Taft, Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. Well, but there are other things that I'm completely inept at. One good thing about me is I don't pretend to stuff I can't do. I never, although I have pretty good knowledge of the subjects that I talk about, if someone asks me about something that I'm not really up to speed on, I never fake it. Mm -hmm. I say, I don't know. How do you prepare for an interview? And what's your process for writing questions? I usually write bullet points, uh, areas that I want to get into. I never write out the question word for word. And one of the worst things you can do is be completely locked into, I just asked question three and I'm going to ask question four next, because if the person you're talking to says something that either demands clarification or follow-up or elaboration, something you couldn't have expected, wow, that's interesting, tell me more. You have to be nimble enough. You want to be prepared enough that you have more than enough that if the game went 20 innings, you still wouldn't be out of stuff. But you're not committed to using it all. You're a longtime producer and 
I guess equally close friend, Bruce Kornblatt, mm -hmm. told me he has learned to only ever get nervous if he finds out you're thinking about something too soon. What do you think of that? I'm a little bit like the kid who does the term paper, you know, pulls an all-nighter uh, when it's due, but I still get it done and it, and it doesn't, the, the quality of it isn't diminished. I need, I need a little bit of pressure. Football Night in America commentaries that you mm -hmm. used to give, you know, halftime, Sunday mm -hmm. night football, couple minutes. You oftentimes wouldn't write it until the, the first quarter of the actual game. Yeah, that's right. What I would do is I would pick up the phone and I would call Aaron Cohen, longtime writing collaborator who would be in New York, and I would kind of off the top of my head dictate the general idea. He'd shoot me back a draft, then I'd fiddle with it, shoot it back to him, and we'd have it. And usually we finished it about I don't know, four minutes, five minutes to go in the second quarter. But it would be rare that I'd be thinking about it on Wednesday or Thursday leading up to Sunday. You have at times uh, been challenged when it comes to punctuality. Oh, uh, yes. Any connectivity between your process for preparing and punctuality? I don't know. I haven't thought about it in that kind of depth. Um, I hope I have some virtues. If among the worst of your vices, is that you're not especially punctual. I'll live with that, and I'll cop to that. In fact, they used to do, at NBC, they would often give me a false start time. We want you here at 9 a.m., when they really needed me at 9.30. Then, when I showed up at 9.15, they figured I was 15 minutes early. But my response always was, you've booked an hour for this. I'm gonna get it on the first take. The net is gonna be, you're gonna have 45 minutes of twiddling your thumbs. So what's your complaint? Was there some instance at KMOX back in the day in terms of? Oh, that, you're talking about missing the plane to Memphis? Yeah. Um, I was the very young voice of the spirits of St. Louis, of the old ABA. I don't take into account the possibility of a traffic jam or whatever it might be. And so I miss the initial flight. But there's another one at 5 o'clock. There's a thunderstorm and the plane is delayed. And eventually I get to the arena like four or five minutes into the game. And they have my late close friend who was my broadcast partner on home games, Bill Wilkerson back at the station saying, we're having technical difficulties. And he later says that was true because technically you're an idiot. Um, and so I eventually show up, I do the game, my heart is pounding. I'm thinking for sure I'm gonna get fired. But luckily, um, they must have seen something in me and they took pity on me and they gave me a stern lecture, but let me continue. But after the game was over, Marvin Barnes, who was the star of the team, draped an arm over my shoulder trying to console me. And he said, bro, don't worry. If they fire your sorry ass, I've been looking for a little white dude to drive my Rolls Royce, so you got a job. Tell about being John Madden's audition partner. 1979, uh, I'm 27 years old, look like I'm about 15, and I was doing regional games for CBS. And I'm thinking, boy, could I possibly be any luckier? So John Madden has just quit coaching, and it's not at all clear to him or to CBS that he's gonna become John Madden, the broadcaster and pop culture figure, but they thought he might have a future in it. So they wanna do an audition game, 
And my job is just to provide the framework of a broadcast, to give the nuts and bolts of play-by-play. -play. He did much better than he thought. He was very nervous. But you could tell right away that there was something unique about him that he brought to it. Um, he wasn't copying anybody else. He didn't know how to copy anyone else. He, he was sui generis to begin with. And then it only became amplified uh, through the years. You guys ever talk about that later in life? Yeah, yeah. And he, uh, he would always mention it with appreciation. Um, what I remember about it, among other things, is they did an opening on camera. I should have been sitting on his knee. He took up 75, 80% of the frame. What's the deal with you and Howard Cosell? Well, it's a multifaceted deal. I met him for the first time uh, at the World Series in Baltimore, the Phillies and the Orioles at the old Memorial Stadium in 1983. He's wearing that hideous mustard yellow ABC blazer. He's brandishing a cigar about the size of a Louisville slugger. And I say, Mr. Cosell, my name is Bob Costas. It's a pleasure to meet you. And he goes, I know who you are. You're the child who rhapsodizes about the infield fly rule. I'm sure you'll have a fine career. And he flicked a cigar ash and walked back into the booth. And my first thought is, this is the biggest schmuck I have ever encountered. But then in the next instant, I'm thinking, no, 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 this is great. I got the full Howard Cosell treatment. And here we are, I got a story I'm telling some 40 years later. Now, subsequently, I wouldn't say we became close friends, but we were acquainted, and I worked up the gumption to challenge him on a few occasions. I said, you know, Howard, you should be, to all of us in sports broadcasting, what Walter Cronkite is to young newscasters. You should be the emeritus guy. You should be the guy we turn to. But because you can't be comfortable with all you've achieved, and you have so much resentment of others, you've alienated many of us. And I want to be, if not your friend, I want you to understand, even though we're different, how much I admire the best of what you did. And he paused for a second, he goes, we were on the phone. Maybe you're right, kid. Maybe you're right. All right, we'll talk again soon. But we never did, and he died shortly after that. What was your reaction to that when you got off the phone? I said what I, wanted to say, it wasn't antagonistic. It was actually, if he thought about it properly, appreciative. Yeah. Um, and and I, was, I was always amused by Howard because he was simultaneously a cartoon character, the character of Howard Cosell, but he was also a very consequential figure. He resented Al Michaels, he resented me and others that he couldn't easily dismiss as lightweights because he wanted preeminence. And in a way, he had preeminence. He had a broad, broad fame. Famously, when TV Guide really mattered, there was a TV Guide poll. And he won both favorite and least favorite sports broadcaster in the same poll. ABC's late Jim McKay, who yeah. was about as accomplished a broadcaster as exists, mm -hmm. uh, going into your first Olympics, uh, he gave this kind of glowing review. He talked about how you change course quickly, know so many different sports, nice sense of the story, an excellent interviewer, uh, brings that sophistication to the viewer. And then he concluded by saying, I'm sorry I won't be in Barcelona to do the Olympics, but if I have to watch anybody, I'm glad it's Bob Costas. What did that mean to you then? It meant a tremendous amount. He was not only <clears throat> the gold standard for what he did, 
he was a genuinely decent and gracious man. Um, I'd like to think there was some truth in the quote you just read, but a lot of it was him just being a good guy, being gracious, trying to encourage me. Um, that was my first Olympics as the primetime host in Barcelona, and luckily it went extremely well in a number of aspects, and it was a turning point in my career. What about him did you most admire? I admired his combination of professional skill and humanity. He could be the finest of journalists, witness what he did in Munich, and the classic quote, everyone remembers, they're all gone. But prior to that, he said, you know, my father always used to say, our fondest hopes and our greatest fears are seldom realized. Well, tonight, our greatest fears have been realized. That's, that comes from a place of a life that's richer than just sports. That comes from having lived an interesting life, from having read, from having had experiences that you can bring to bear when appropriate, even if you're broadcasting a sports event. He could simultaneously be that and also summon, not in a false way, but in a, an authentic way, the enthusiasm and joy and wonder of a child. To what extent do you think his handling in Munich influenced you? Well, I think anyone who sat in that chair would be aware that you need to not just know who this pole vaulter or cross-country skier is. You need to know, does this country have a president or a prime minister? Who's the head of security? Who's the head of the police force? What's their equivalent of the FBI? What happens in an emergency? Who am I talking to? What do I need to know? You hope that this is information that you never have to use but I prepared for it every time. By your mid-30s, you're the, the face of uh, the network sports division. Why do you think you were able to kind of work your way up the ladder so quickly? This is the honest truth, Graham. I never angled for or politicked for any job or any assignment at any time. And when the networks took note of me, it was as a play-by-play -play guy. And then when Brian Gumbel went from hosting NBC Sports to the Today Show, um, the people at NBC Sports had seen something in me. They said, you can do this. And I said, I've never done any studio stuff at all. In fact, for the first five years of it, I never used a teleprompter. I ad-libbed everything. I had little notes on a card. I guess that what appealed, and Mike Tirico has, in his own way, has this quality too. I could do play-by-play. -play, I could host. And then it turned out, although I had to be convinced by Dick Ebersol and Brandon Tartikoff, it turned out that I was able to do stuff outside sports. Uh, so I did the later and, program. And Letterman first put that idea in Ebersol's head, right? Yeah, Letterman um, said to Dick Ebersol, and the exact quote was, if he can make Bart Starr interesting for an hour, why couldn't he talk to anybody? And that too was important to me, not so much as a career stepping stone, but it was something that I learned that I could do. And it was gratifying, not just at the time, but now it has a new life on YouTube. And I hear from people pretty often who say, gee, I saw you with Dennis Hopper. I saw your interview with Paul McCartney or whatever it might be. And it's very gratifying that people appreciate it 30 years later. Did you ever feel like there were those that outworked you? I think I actually got to a point where I learned what I didn't need to know. And that's really important with the Olympics. First few Olympics I did, I'm literally trying to memorize, you know, every, every pole vaulter from Peru. And then eventually it became clear to me, 
that the host of the Olympics needs to be a very good generalist, needs to know the big storylines, needs to know the history of the Olympics, the history of the host city and nation, and also be able to take a briefing if something unexpected happens, get the material from the researchers, and make some kind of narrative out of it. A good broadcasting career, a good presentation, should be like a really good edition of the old Sports Illustrated. It has some elements of journalism. It has some elements of commentary. It has some humor. It has some history. It has an appreciation of the beauty, excitement, drama, and shared experience of sports. Maybe not in exactly the same proportion every time out, but over time, that's the texture. If it's only one or two notes, if it's only a celebration, but no skeptical eye toward the issues of the elephants in the room, then something's missing. But if it doesn't have some celebration, some embrace of the drama, then what the hell are we here for? And I think that at my best, you know, it's a different stage of my career now, but at my best, I think I hit all those notes on the scale. What impact, if any, do you think your pursuit of excellence in your profession has had on your personal life? I think 90% of it has been good. Um, the experiences that I've had, and more importantly, the experiences I've been able to give my family and friends, um, that's, that's enhanced my life. Um, it's brought me into contact with interesting people. Uh, it's informed my view of the world. It's taken me literally, geographically, almost every place that I've ever wanted to go. And in terms of the people I've known or the preparation I've had to do, especially for stuff outside sports, it's broadened me as a person. Uh, there's always sacrifices in, especially when my kids were younger, you know, you're away because you have to do the games, but that's one of the great things about having this profession. A kid can be there and understand it. In 1993, when David Letterman went from NBC to CBS, he controlled the hour after. And I had followed him on NBC, and I'd been on his show many times, apart from my own show. And he offered me that hour after him, and to sweeten the pot, CBS offered a spot on 60 Minutes, which is still the gold standard, but then it had even greater effect on the, on the culture. So 60 Minutes and the spot after David Letterman. And they said, we'll charter you, you know, from St. Louis. Uh, you can do two shows on Thursday. You'll be home on Thursday night. You don't have to come back till late Monday afternoon. They had the whole thing laid out. It was a, a very tempting offer, but this was a big part of my decision. You can't say to a kid, I'm interviewing the Secretary of State. Want to come along? But you sure as hell can say, let's go to the World Series. Let's go to the NBA Finals. We'll see Michael Jordan. Let's go to the Olympics. They can relate to what you're doing and actually be part of what you're doing. Okay, I'll give you one more because you have uh, turned down a number of significant uh, offers. Yeah. 2007, Don Imus is canceled from his national radio show Not many people and, know this. and MSNBC. Mm -hmm. And within a few days, and I didn't ask him to do this, he patched together some offer and I was offered for a ridiculous amount of money. Okay, and this is approaching $20 million a year, and it would be a, a multi-year deal. First of all, uh, the 2008 Olympics were pending. Um, I owed that to Dick Ebersole and the people at NBC. Plus, I didn't want to get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, five days a week. 
by Thursday of the first week, I would have regretted it. Plus, so too would NBC. I would have been a very bad choice uh, for what they were offering me. They, they were wrong-headed in that. And I, I, I never thought about it for two seconds after politely declining. HBO, uh, as I understand it originally, wanted you as the, the host of uh, Real Sports. And, and NBC, I, I don't think at the time, would uh, yeah. you know, let you do it. On the NBC side, when uh, Bryant Gumbel was the then Today Show anchor, and they were concerned that uh, he might not you know, continue with his contract, mm -hmm. they approached you. Yes, um, they did approach me about the Today Show. Almost the same reaction. I'm not getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I mean, what's your next offer? You want me to walk on hot coals? I'm not getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. It's not who I am. Just like the earlier uh, offer you alluded to, I wouldn't have been the right choice. Even if I wanted to do it, I wouldn't have been the right choice. 1969, uh, Comac High School varsity basketball tryouts. I, yes. I think you hit 88 of 100 free throws. 91. Oh, uh, 91. Oh, 91 out of 100. Only to then still get cut. When Coach Pete Ferenz cut me, social studies teacher slash basketball coach, he said, I could keep you around for comic relief, <laughs> or I could keep you around just to shoot technicals, but you have to be in the game. And if I put you in the game, you can't guard anybody. I know you can shoot, but you need a triple screen to get the shot off. So this is my way of telling you, you're cut. But he also told me, as did the baseball coach, you ever think about broadcasting? Yeah, that's pretty much all I think about. Good, try that. <laughs> because th those thoughts first started creeping into your head when you were like 10, 11 yeah. years old. Yeah, I could never separate uh, the broadcasters from the games. If I was shooting baskets in the schoolyard by myself, or throwing a, a rubber ball or a tennis ball off a wall and doing an imaginary game, I'm hearing Mel Allen or Red Barber or Marty Glickman, who practically invented the way basketball is called on the radio. Great, vibrant voice. He was wonderful. And then later in his life, he became a mentor. What happened where you were suspended for three days? We were playing basketball at Wood Park School. And one of the kids, not me, the gym teacher's door is open. And that set of keys, remember how every teacher had this huge set of keys? Mm -hmm. What could they all be for? There's like 15 keys. He stole the keys, okay? What are we gonna do with this? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, I'm, I'm the guy saying this. You know, we're not gonna break into the school and steal. We're not gonna do that. But how about this? It's winter time. We can go in, we'll arrange a game. Every weekend, we'll go in and we'll play in the gym. We'll have our own league. And we did. And this went on for like six, seven weeks. And it was a tight group because we didn't want the word to get around. But somebody tipped the cops off. And so on one particular snowy day, I looked up and down the hallway, here comes a, a, a uniformed policeman. And everybody scatters. And they're all rounded up, except I got away. <laughs> and I wound up at home. But there wasn't a real code of omerta among these young lads. And so they gave me up immediately. So the next thing you know, <laughs> there's two squad cars outside my door, and they're taking me out. They arrested us. What, what are your parents saying? They're, well, my father was a streetwise guy. My mother was rather traumatized by it. Um, and you know, they, the neighbors are on the stoops and they're looking, what, what are they taking Bobby away for? So they took us and they booked us. 
They actually booked us. They fingerprinted us and everything. Um, and then we were suspended from school and our parents had to come down to this meeting, um, the PTA or whatever the hell it was. Um, and then they threw the case out of court. The judge is like, you are charged with playing basketball in the school gym. Case dismissed. You said what you most remember about growing up in Long Island was just how awkward you felt. Uh, how so? Um, I didn't belong to any group. I liked sports, but I wasn't going to be an athlete, so uh, I wasn't a jock. I wasn't a greaser or a hoodlum, as they were then called. Um, I didn't fit any category. I was relatively smart, but I wasn't devoted to academics. So I wasn't like, you know, what they called a brain. You had a 77 average in high school. Yes, I did. Because if it didn't interest me, I just said, screw it. So um, the science stuff, I could never grasp it. You flunked chemistry. I flunked chemistry, yes, I did. Man, this is background work. This <laughs> is like a dossier you have on me. Tell about how you became a bookie. Well, my father was an inveterate gambler, big time gambler. Uh, the mortgage literally riding on the outcome of his bets. And he didn't gamble at the racetrack or at the casinos, he bet on ball games. And so by the time I was 10 or 11, I could give you with great accuracy the line on any game you might mention. And so I realized, because all my friends were sports fans, it was obvious to me that they always overrated their own team's chances. So I made book in the cafeteria. And so if their team was favored, I increased the line so that they were given more points or greater odds than they should. And if their team was the underdog, I reduced the line. And so it got to a point where I, I probably had, I don't know, 80, 90 bucks in cash in the dresser drawer with my little sheets like who owed me what and what next week's odds were and everything. But when my dad came across it, um, he was not happy. And he made it clear that if this continued, there'd be hell to pay because he knew that he couldn't stop. He was addicted to it. Can I ask what your dad said when he caught you? He said, Robert, I can't stop, but you shouldn't start. Don't start. Do you remember how that impacted you at the time? In truth, I was just more afraid that he'd kick my ass because back then, dads kicked their son's ass. The profundity of it and the poignancy of it only occurred to me much later. And what's your opinion on why the family moved cross country? Oh, it's not an opinion. I know why we moved across country in 1960. My father had gambling debts, significant gambling debts, and he didn't have, couldn't come up with a scratch uh, to pay it. And not paying on time with these guys was not pleasant. It was easier to escape then. And how did you know that was the case then? Oh, I, I kind of figured that something was up because our house went for, up for sale very, very quickly, and it sold quickly, and across country we went, but the upside of that trip for me was you'd listen to the Pirates on KDK in Pittsburgh and the Cleveland Indians on 3WE and the Tigers on WJR in Detroit, and I'm hearing all the different broadcasters and I'm absorbing all this baseball. KMOX had a powerful signal, so we heard the Cardinals for a long time on this like five-day drive, um, but when we got to around Nevada, 
through the crackle and static, here came the Dodgers. And I remember my father saying, we're almost there, that's Vin Scully. And that's the first time I ever heard Vin Scully. I did not know this until maybe 10 years ago. My father and Vin Scully were born on the same day, not just the same birthday, the same day, November 29th, 1927. The difference is that my dad lived to be 42, and as we speak, Vin is 94. Your dad was pretty hard on you. He thought you should study criminal justice, and he also never thought you were ambitious enough. Why is that? He thought that wanting to be a broadcaster was you know, sort of a quixotic notion, um, and that maybe if I studied criminal justice, that that would be something that was a more practical career path. So he encouraged me to take that up uh, at Syracuse University. But part of the reason, a large part of the reason Syracuse appealed to me was that I knew that Marty Glickman and Marv Albert had gone there. He didn't live long enough to see me even matriculate at Syracuse. When he died, it, it's like May of my senior year in high school. So he never saw or heard anything I did. And I've often wondered, what would it be like? I could take him to Yankee Stadium. I could take him to Lambeau Field or Wrigley Field, or if he'd lived that long, take him to the Olympics. Um, and you don't have to have a bet. Uh, you don't need to be trying to strike it rich. We're good. I got you. Or would it be, you know, that he'd be pumping me for information? Or would he, and this is like almost comical to think about, would he curse at me through the television? Would it be, you know, hey, my own kid is bringing me bad news. And how would he kind of indirectly involve you in his gambling? He bet on ball games. I liked watching the games with him. I liked following it. I liked actually the exhilaration of it. We're winning or we're losing. Um, and so if my mom and sister fled, a lot of times I would stick with him. And, and why would they flee? Because he had a volatile temper. And if the, uh, if the games were not going his way, and if the, uh, the Christmas money or whatever it was was going down the drain, it wasn't pleasant. And volatile temper means what? Volatile temper means throwing things, cursing, yelling, um, just, you know, not, not good, not good. Um, but I'll say this, my dad was an interesting guy. My, my dad was like out of a movie, or at least so I thought. Um, he was funny, he was charismatic, he was very smart. Um, at his best, if, if he was flush with, with cash, he was very, very generous. Um, so, you know, I wanted to be close to him, and that was a way in which we could be close. Uh, so you're 18, a high school senior, and the, the police come and knock on the door. What do they say? It was a Friday afternoon, May 15th, 1970, and I opened the door. My mother was right behind me, and the cop looked past me and said, Mrs. Costas, and she said, yes, and he said, please sit down. And she said, my husband's dead, isn't he? And he said, yes, ma'am, he is. And he had had a heart attack walking through JFK Airport. From what we can surmise, he was dead before he hit the floor. Sunday at the wake, a gambling buddy of his walks in. The guy's name was Steve Collins. And he handed me an envelope, a thick envelope. And he said, your father was up when he died. Give this to your mother. Now, 
A bookie will never pay a dead man. So when Steve learned that my dad had died, he went to the bookie and said, John sent me to collect. He got the money. There was $6,000 in $100 bills. That was my father's entire estate. How did you handle his death as well as your mom and sister? Well, he was a difficult man. Um, to this day, if you don't resolve, in some sense, a primary relationship in your life, you think about it. He put my mom through the ringer. Uh, she obviously loved him. So um, it wasn't any, any one emotion, but certainly among those emotions is, I'll never know. I'll never know how he would have reacted to me as an adult and to the life I could have made him part of. I'll, I'll never know. Uh, so it's 1966, and mm -hmm. your mom's driving and gets in a, a car accident that nearly takes yep. her life. Um, yep. What happened? Um, rainy day or night. Um, she's the only passenger. Car skids off the road, smack head on into a tree. The doctor later told my dad that he had never seen someone we're not talking about illness, but with traumatic injuries to that extent who survived. I mean, every bone in her body was practically was broken. Um, cranial injuries, everything. Um, but somehow she, she survived it. The, the pain and discomfort that she not only put up with and lived through, but laughed through very often, had a happy, fulfilled life um, despite what she had been through was an amazing thing. What do you think you learned from her? She had a great sense of humor. She was self-deprecating. She took a great deal of pleasure from the fact that she could turn on the TV and see her son. And I wasn't fully aware of this. And one time I was in some kind of storage room in her house and she had stacks and stacks of VHS tapes, Bobby on Hollywood Squares. Bobby on Johnny Carson, Bobby on World Series. But she had like 300 of them that she'd cataloged herself. And she got you a tape recorder at 16. Oh, yeah. Um, a Christmas present when I was 15 or 16. And sometimes I would sit in front of the television set and, you know, turn the sound down and try and broadcast the Yankee game or, or the Met game. And my initial thought then was, this is much harder to do than I ever imagined. I want to run through some notable moments from your career. How about how the Mark McGuire interview came about and your view on what he said? Mark McGuire is a really nice guy. Um, I think he's very sincere in the way he lives his life, uh, not approving of taking steroids, but I think he has a lot of virtues as a person. I've always liked him. He and I always had a good relationship. Um, so when the time came that he wanted to come clean, at least to the extent that he did about this, he had to choose a place that would be credible. It, it wouldn't have done him any good to go to some softball interview. And it came down to 60 Minutes or the Major League Baseball Network. And I think he chose MLBN because it was open-ended. We could do an hour, 90 minutes, whatever it was. This was live uh, and unedited. I knew 
that he was going to acknowledge that he had used steroids. I was very surprised when he then said that the only benefit I got from it was that it helped me recover from my injuries and stay on the field and do what I naturally would have done anyway. And, you know, he was getting very emotional. He was crying. Um, he apologized to everybody, to the Cardinals, to the commissioner, especially to Roger Maris's family, etc. cetera. Um, and I kept trying to gently suggest, I must have given him a half dozen chances. Wait a minute, didn't you see, even though you were a powerful hitter, hit 49 homers as a rookie, didn't you see that you were even better than you had been? Can't you see the cluster of Sammy Sosa seasons, Barry Bonds seasons, guys who hit 18 home runs all of a sudden hitting 45 home runs? Can't you see a correlation here? And he could never acknowledge it. And so far as I know to this day, he can't acknowledge it. I don't think he's being consciously dishonest. I think that he's convinced that that is the truth. Um, but at least, even if he didn't fully come around on what most of us would like to have seen him acknowledge, at least he acknowledged something. Almost nobody else has acknowledged it. March of 88, Runyon's, you're hosting Costas Coast to Coast on the radio. Yep. Uh, your longtime producer and friend, Bruce, told me the two of you were at your apartment beforehand going over and over and over your preparations. And Bruce said it's the only time in his entire life working with you that Was he, this could Ted tell, Williams? he could tell yeah. you were anxious to get it right. Well, you have to consider the context. In 1988, there weren't as many broadcast outlets. The internet didn't exist. Plus, Ted Williams had not done an interview of any consequence anywhere with anyone in like 20 years. And he was Ted Williams. There was a tremendous mystique around him. So I knew that this interview would have to be not just good, it would have to be close to definitive because this was the great Ted Williams, the icon of all Red Sox icons, and he was speaking. It was like the, just short of if J.D. Salinger decided to break his silence. So I had to get this right in terms of making sure I didn't leave anything important unaddressed. And luckily, you know, he liked me, and there was a, a rapport almost immediately. I heard you say one time you could smell the wood burning when you fouled a pitch off. Well, it's absolutely the truth. Now, when I said that, we were the Boggs and Mattingly that night. He talked about how he couldn't bring himself to tip his cap when he hit a home run in his last time at bat at Fenway Park in 1960. He never tipped his cap because some of the fans had booed him and the press had been tough on him and he, you know, he could be tempestuous himself. And he said between second and third, I thought my arm went, went I, but I couldn't quite do it. Damn it, I couldn't quite do it. And that was the end of it. And toward the end of the interview, I said, you know what? You actually are the guy in real life that John Wayne played in all those movies. And for a moment, I saw him pause like, well, I don't want to sound immodest, but his blunt honesty got the better of whatever modesty. And his answer was, yeah, I know it. What did he say to the book publicist after your interview oh, about the next day's Today Show interview? Yeah, I didn't help the Today Show. <laughs> this is not the way you sell a book. 
<laughs> you know, to, to pass up a, a shot on the Today Show. But he felt that he'd said his piece that, the night before with me, so he didn't do it. I'm curious what comes to mind uh, about your Vince McMahon I interview. Well, I, I knew that uh, there were topics to cover with McMahon. Uh, the XFL was in its first and last year. It was getting literally the lowest ratings in the history of primetime television for any programming, not just sports programming. And it was schlock. It was crap. No disrespect to any of the players and coaches, but in, in any case, I knew I'd have to ask him about that. And since he was there and was seldom interviewed in a real setting, I thought I should ask him about the turn that wrestling had taken from the sort of tongue-in-cheek, good-natured thing that I remembered watching as a kid to something that had a harder edge in the so-called attitude era. But the interview became very heated perhaps because he wasn't expecting to be challenged. Although I told him in the green room beforehand, there are gonna be some tough questions here. Take a look at the tape when you play it back. Right. How many times did Bob Costas interrupt Vince McMahon before he let him answer the question? Just to try to keep you on point, go ahead. Sure. And he came forward and starts jabbing his finger. So now we're like nose to nose and I wasn't so much smiling as smirking. And I think that set him off all the more. You, it's not fair to take one little excerpt right. of this and one little excerpt of that and, let's, and then generalize, okay? Let's, let's end on this. Safe. We have to end, we, I'm having we, fun. He was very angry. It's HBO, it's live, there's no commercials. And it's like 27, 28 minutes, most of which is unremitting tension. <laughs> and then he gets up to leave. I shake his hand, Vince, thanks for coming. He walks out and you can hear the door slam. And wouldn't you know it, the next guest is Bob Knight. And I remember sitting down and saying, Coach, this is the one time in your life when your presence will lower the temperature in the room. You know, no one remembers anything that Bob Knight had to say. The McMahon thing was a big deal. It got a lot of press. It, wasn't my, I mean, it was my intention always to make it good television and, and to get some good points across, but it's never my intention to create a circus atmosphere in any situation. Other people may aspire to that. I don't. I think it, it goes opposite of what I'm trying to achieve. I don't dislike Vince. I think he's funny. I think he's talented. I certainly don't approve of everything he does, but some of the stuff is quite entertaining. And didn't he call you like the next yes. day? Yes. The next morning, uh, my phone rings. Bob, Vince, let's make it two out of three falls. I want a rematch. I said, great. And we did do the second about a year later, and it was very good, but much less heated on HBO. We've never had the third one, but I've crossed paths with him a few times since then. I was in a restaurant a couple of years after that, and the waitress taps me on the shoulder, uh, Mr. Costa, Mr. McMahon would like to say a lot. Oh, look at it, it's Vince McMahon. And he's with his daughter and Triple H, right? So I go up to shake Vince's hand, and Triple H stands up, this gargantuan guy, and he says, careful, Bob, this time he brought back up. <laughs> now, the only thing about this that it isn't even annoying, it's amusing. Vince continues to say, he said it in the documentary about the XFL, and he said it recently in a book that's a history of HBO, I wish that Bob was bigger because then I could have kicked the crap out of him. Now, let's consider this premise. The premise then is, if I don't like your questioning, but as long as we're in the same weight class, it's okay if I just try to kick the shit out of you. What sense does that make? That's ridiculous on its face. It's dopey, but what the hell, who cares? I don't dislike Vince. If Vince walked in here right now, we'd have a laugh. We'd probably go have a drink. And then he'd kick the shit out of him. Tell about how OJ 
uh, Simpson yeah. tried to contact you during the Bronco chase, and yep. then you subsequently visited him in jail. Yeah. Well, OJ and I had been very friendly. We worked on the football show together uh, for a number of years on NBC. OJ was a very affable man. Um, I had no real understanding of uh, some of the domestic violence that took place in his relationship uh, with Nicole. Um, and so all of us were stunned when we heard about the murders on a Sunday night. And our first thought was, oh, what a tragedy for OJ and, and his family. And then as 48, 72 hours went by, the realization set in, he's a suspect here. Now, Friday is when they announce that they're uh, seeking his arrest, but he's disappeared. And they announce that he's a fugitive. And you can hear all the reporters gasping, like this is something out of a B movie. That night is game five of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden between the Knicks and the Rockets. So when the world finally comes to understand that he's making his way uh, down the 405 slow speed Bronco chase, almost every other network and station goes live to that. And the whole country is transfixed by it. But Dick Ebersol has to make a decision. And so part of the time they go to Tom Brokaw, who's at 30 Rock. I'm at Madison Square Garden. Marv Albert's calling the game. I have to kind of bridge between Tom and Marv. And of course, at that time, you don't know what's going to happen. We know that he just got out of the car at his house in Brentwood and, and gave himself up peacefully. But you didn't know if he'd kill himself. You didn't know if there'd be a gun battle when he got out of the car. He had no idea. He says he's got a gun to his head. Uh, A.C. Cowlings, his former Buffalo teammate and longtime friend, is, is telling the police that that's what's going on. Okay, so we do what we do. The, uh, the Knicks win the game. So I'm sitting around the hotel on Monday, and a woman whose name I forget, never heard it before or since, from Time Magazine calls and says, we hear that OJ tried to call you from the Bronco. And I say, truthfully, I think, no, that never happened. Okay, the conversation lasts a minute. Now fast forward several months. It's November of 94. The trial doesn't start till January. He's in the LA County Jail. He had sent word through intermediaries that when I was in Los Angeles, he'd like to see me. So Robert Kardashian, who's part of his defense team, picks me up at the uh, hotel and takes me to the LA County Jail. And it's me, A.C. Cowlings, and Kardashian on one side of the glass, and O.J. in a blue prison outfit, looked to me like he'd lost about 20 pounds. He comes walking in, sits on a stool opposite us, and the way you shake hands is you put your hand up against his against the glass. And I had cut my finger, so I had a bandage, this is no joke, I had a bandage on my finger, and this little bit of blood, and I put, and he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, you did it. Like he's, like it's a joke, right? And so we sit there, and the whole time he's, you know, gently trying to convince me that he couldn't possibly have done this. If I did do something like this, I'm a smart guy. Would I leave a glove in the driveway? And I'm thinking, without saying it, once you cross this unthinkable line and do something like this, if you did, then all bets are off about your past patterns of behavior. But what I said to everything he said was, well, you'll have a chance to tell your 
story in court. At one point, A.C. Cowlings pipes up and he says, you know, we tried to call you from the back of the Bronco. I'm like, now I'm thinking about the lady from Time Magazine. And he called my house in St. Louis. I wasn't there. And he had the number of the studio. But since it was the finals, we were at the site. We're at mm -hmm. Madison Square Garden. So he calls, the phone rings and rings, and finally someone picks it up. And it's a tech guy, an engineer. It's Bob Costas. No, he's not there. I got to speak to Bob Costas. He's not here. I have to speak to Bob Costas right now. He's at Madison Square Garden. I have to speak to him. Who's calling? O.J. Simpson. Yeah, right. Click. And the guy hangs up the phone. Because what would you think? It's a prank. Right. Okay. So I don't find out about this till, till months later. Now, if somehow we had actually connected, it was already one of the most memorable moments in television history. The whole, it's like the moon landing. Everyone's watching it. Um, but I would have had to have asked him some rather pointed questions, regardless of what his answers would have been. OJ, did you do it? If you didn't do it, what are, what are you doing running? What are you doing with a gun to your head in the back of the car? But it, it, never, it never came to pass. And that was the last time that I uh, saw or spoke to OJ. It was? Yeah. November of 1994. The final torchbearer at the Atlanta yeah. Games. How did that come about? 1996 Atlanta Olympics. Dick Ebersol gets all the credit in the world for this. Head of NBC Sports long history with the Olympics, great sense of how they should be presented. And he suggests to the Atlanta organizers, Muhammad Ali. And at least some of them pushed back and said, you know, he may be a hero in some parts of the country, but down here in the South, he's still a draft dodger. And Dick said, no, you got it wrong. The country has come around on this. This is a, a, a life that's had many chapters. So he convinces them, but no one knows. Dick Enberg and I are hosting the opening ceremony, and Dick Ebersole says, I'm not going to tell you who it is. You will instantly recognize him or her, but I want your reaction to be as spontaneous as the people in the stadium. So there's no way to prepare. I'm thinking, who could it be? You know, Evander Holyfield was the heavyweight champion of the world. He's from Atlanta. Hank Aaron, but he's not really connected to the Olympics. Um, it never occurred to me that it might be Muhammad Ali. And they rehearsed it one time at like 3 o'clock in the morning. No, like a dozen people on planet Earth knew who it was. And the way they staged it, when Janet Evans, the great swimmer, came up the long staircase to the top, Muhammad literally stepped out of the shadows and into the brightest spotlight, really, in all of global sports. And you'd, you hear a lot of sounds in an arena or stadium. One you almost never hear is an audible gasp. 60,000 some people, oh my, it took like two or three seconds before it gave way to thunderous applause. And, you know, even then, 20 years before his death, he's compromised. He's shaking. The effects of Parkinson's are there. And in that moment, the combination of the dramatic presentation, his charisma and standing, even in that compromised state, it's Muhammad Ali, for God's sake, and the reconciliation. You got the feeling that in that moment, those who had been doubters or even antagonistic had come around. Here was this guy, once the most nimble and beautiful of athletes. He was a beautiful figure in a brutal sport. He was willing to present himself shaking and trembling, such a contrast to his former self. He was always a vain man. I'm too pretty to be a boxer, and look at me, I don't have a scratch on me, etc. 
and yet he was willing, he'd come around in his own life, he was so spiritual, he was willing to present himself to the world that way. That was poignant, that was profound. And I think everybody got it. In their, in their own way, everybody got it. W what about it? it still touches you to this day? I get goosebumps still thinking about it. There's the humanity of it and the arc of his life. I mean, this guy has a profound life beyond his obvious athletic excellence and brilliance and, and how compelling he was to watch. All the issues that, that, circ that swirled around him, uh, what he put on the line, you know, bumper stickers are one thing, tweets or another, even kneeling at a game. He doesn't step forward. He doesn't know if he'll ever fight again. And as it was, he loses more than three years of the prime of his career, millions and millions of dollars. He doesn't know if he'll go to jail. You know, if he just stepped forward, he would never would have seen combat. It would have been like Joe Lewis. You know, you fight some army exhibitions. You don't have to agree with it to say, wait a minute, this guy put his money where his mouth was. This guy walked the walk. He put it all on the line. You got to respect that. Um, plus, his decency became evident and became a figure of goodwill and, and, and peace and reconciliation. You know, his decency, he was a flawed person. He, and the recent Ken Burns documentary lays that out. He was flawed. He was a man. He wasn't a saint. He was a hell of a man. The only question I had on uh, kind of the ending of the relationship with NBC is, is this. Um, you know, you were there 40 years. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on just why it ended unceremoniously? When Comcast took over NBC, they couldn't have been nicer to me. They treated me wonderfully. But there, there were times when my notions, especially as I got to be older, you didn't have baseball anymore, didn't have the NBA anymore. I had ambivalent feelings about football. It was getting to where I'd done 10, 11, 12 Olympics. Some of those Olympics were in places like China and Sochi, Russia. You know, somebody's got to acknowledge the elephants in those rooms. And there were times when that created tension. And I thought that my own credibility uh, was at stake. Super Bowl 2012. Indianapolis, yeah. you're hosting a magazine-style show for NBC Sports Network. Yes. Similar to kind of what you do for HBO. Mm -hmm. Concussion panel, Patriots owner Bob Kraft's on it. Yep. Um, explain what happened in the subsequent fallout. You know, that was interesting. Um, the Comcast guys said, we'll replicate the HBO show. And they did. And that was the very first show from the site of the Super Bowl. People loved it. So it was well-received. But part of the focus, naturally, was CTE. And Bob Kraft's reaction was, we're on the verge of the Super Bowl, and this is too negative. When I signed my last contract at NBC in 2012, it contained an emeritus clause. I told them I wanted the 2016 Olympics and that football season to be my last. They came to me in 2015, and they asked if I had a change of heart. I said, absolutely not. We'll stick with the plan. But it included an emeritus clause where I would be to sports for the next five years and maybe beyond that, what Tom Brokaw had been to news after he gave up the anchor seat. Very appealing, made a lot of sense. But then some of the things I said, both on NBC and in other places. Link uh, between brain damage and Yeah, brain the damage to the yeah. NFL. And it got into a passive aggressive place where I think maybe both parties couldn't see the forest for the trees. And I think that they 
began to view me as much of, as an annoyance as an asset. And after all that time, you say to yourself, hey, this, this isn't right. We've hit a point of diminishing returns. And I knew that if I left, that I could go to places where I'd be able to do what at that point I really wanted to do. There was no announcement. I didn't need a parade, but it would have been nice if I could have ended on a grace note. I didn't need a full-blown hour as a tribute to my career, as some people receive. I would have been fine if they just had me do some sort of programming and then at the end, for two minutes, say goodbye. That didn't happen. And finally it got out because people wondered where I was. And so then it just came out like kind of in a press release. And what I regret, and I blame myself for this, ESPN, through Mark Fainaruwada, one of the most respected sports journalists, uh, League of Denial, Game of Shadows, he says to me, in effect, I want to do an appreciation of your career. That's very flattering, very nice. Anyone would give him my respect for him and the way he laid it out. Um, and he did a perfectly responsible job. But in retrospect, I know what happened. In a two-hour sit-down, the producer saw the Geiger counter move in the 10 minutes or so that we talked about football and how uh, football reigns over everything and how, I guess the money quote was, everyone walks around eggshells, walks on eggshells around the NFL. I never brought up the names of any of my NBC colleagues or bosses. Those names were filled in in narration afterwards with their pictures because they put together that these were the people that decided that, that uh, it was time to cut ties. So the way it was presented, at least from their perspective, I'm the hero of the story and they're the villains. I never felt that way. You know, you go 40 years, there are gonna be some bumps in the road, especially if you have any kind of independence of, of thought. And in the big picture, it was a great and productive relationship. Um, nothing that was in the televised piece was untrue. But let's say you were talking about a marriage or a longtime friendship, and the whole story became the time that you were at odds. Well, it might be true, but it's misleading in the big picture. So I get what the producer did. This is what moves the needle. This is, this, this is the story. And then when it got out there, People misinterpreted it. One of the things that almost amused me was that supposedly I was upset because I lost the Super Bowl gig. I didn't care. I cared more about where I'd go for dinner that night. But naturally, that's the way idiots framed it. Like, oh, Bob, he wants to have it both ways. He wants to criticize the NFL, but he also wants to be the host of the Super Bowl. I didn't give a damn. So to recap what you were saying, you just were regret having participated in, in that story because had you known what the narrative would be from the outset, you never would have agreed to it. Yes, the narrative yeah, right. became Bob versus NBC. Right. The only thing I wish about leaving NBC is that it ended on a more gracious note. And maybe we'll circle back and, and, and make that right at some point, make it completely right. Do you think that'll happen? I hope so. Um, and I think there's a chance that it will. So Dick Ebersol being the longtime NBC sports chief, you had plenty of leeway uh, uh, under him. But I do know that there were occasions that he tried to, you know, shut you down a, a decent amount and it caused you frustration in, in the 90s. What was that dynamic like? 
He had a tremendous impact on my career. He saw in me something I didn't really see in myself, at least I didn't fully realize it. He's also opinionated and strong-willed and sometimes gets tunnel vision, like we all do. And I guess I was one of the few people who would challenge him. A very intelligent friend of mine said to me sometime, maybe 15 years ago, there's two Bobs. There's HBO Bob and there's Olympic Bob. You know, on HBO, I pretty much was in control of what I said. On NBC, I had to insert a lot of it parenthetically, where you pick your spots. HBO is performer's paradise, always has been, completely supportive. What do you want to do? We'll give you all the resources on the platform to do it. You don't have to fight for it. We're pulling on the same end of the rope as you are. Tell about the few nights Mickey Mantle spent at your home in St. Louis. Well, Mickey um, was in St. Louis to do a charity event at my request. And he stayed at our home in, in St. Louis. Um, He's, you know, disarmingly uh, vulnerable, you know. Um, he's a giant icon, but a person who, who had regrets and, and obvious demons. And we invited Stan Musial and his wife Lil over for dinner because we thought Mickey should be around people he knew. And it was a wonderful evening, lots of stories and laughter and everything. And after Stan and Lil had left and kids had gone to bed and everybody except me and Mickey was either had left or had gone to sleep. And Mickey and I are sitting talking well past midnight. And he just says something that in that Oklahoma twang was really eloquent in its own way. He said, you know, I was, should have been as good a player as Stan. Nobody had more power than me. Before I got hurt, nobody could run faster than me. But Stan was a better player than me because he's a better man than me, because he got everything out of what God gave him that he could, so he doesn't have to live with all the regrets that I live with. He admired Stan, not just as a player, but as a person, and the life that Stan led, the long and happy life that Stan led. Um, died in his early 90s, Mickey was gone at 63, but a measure of Stan's decency, Stan, who no one would have marked absent, got on a plane that morning from St. Louis and unannounced, no one knew he was going to be there. I'm do, doing the eulogy. I looked out over the, the attendees, and there was Stan Musial halfway back by himself, just a measure of the quiet decency of the man. You know, it, it struck me, though, that um, you got choked up in Musial's yeah. uh, funeral and, and not Mantle's. Yeah, I, I've come to understand this. Um, Stan lived a full life. He's 92, 93 years old. Um, it's sad in the sense that it's a passage, and he meant so much to so many people's lives, especially in St. Louis, but it's not tragic, whereas there was elements of tragedy to Mickey's life. But I've learned this about myself. What sometimes chokes me up involuntarily isn't stuff that's sad. Decency chokes me up. At an all-star game in the 1950s, all the great black players, Frank Robinson, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Ernie Banks, were kind of gathered in a corner of the National League clubhouse playing cards. No white players anywhere near them. 
when Stan just walked up and casually said, deal me in. That was his way of letting those players know that they were welcome. Something about that, just saying that, choked me up and actually threw me off <clears throat> because what I was going to ad-lib afterwards, I couldn't return to the script because it wasn't in the script, was think of what that meant. And Hank Aaron and Willie Mays both told me that story years before independently, that they remembered it all those years later and what it meant to them. Think of what that meant not only to those black players, but to the other white players in that clubhouse, many of them from the still Jim Crow South, to see the most accomplished and most respected among them make that simple gesture. That is more likely to choke me up even a little bit now. So this one is uh, 13 years in the works, this interview. So it's been uh, t 20 years since we last really sat down. So I figure we should start in a couple weeks discussing doing this around your 90th. Yeah, let's, let's look at it this way. If we have to go another 13 years of you badgering me before I finally am just worn down and I succumb, you'll be talking to an 83-year-old man who most of your audience will have no interest in and who may not at that point be coherent. Thank you very much. You're welcome very much. Good luck making chicken salad out of that. And that'll do it for this edition of In-Depth. As you can tell, Bob was highly disappointed the conversation had to end. If you made it all the way here, thanks for listening. To see YouTube clips featuring friends and colleagues of Costas, go to youtube.com slash Bensinger for the whole playlist. As always, a friendly reminder, leave us a rating and review. It's very much appreciated. Thanks again for listening.